Welcome to Fit for My Age, a series of conversations between Abbasida and people who think outside the box about health and well-being, with the aim of helping everyone live a healthier life. I am your host, Michael Millward, the Managing Director of Abbasida, and today I am joined by Andy Romero Birkbeck from We Are Wellbeing. Hello, Andy. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having us. Good to, good to be here. It's a great pleasure. I know you're a busy man, so thank you very much for finding the time to, to join me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. Please, could we start by you telling us a bit about the work that We Are Wellbeing does, or is the clue in the name? Kind of in the name. We, we are wellbeing, but obviously wellbeing is quite a broad, uh, holistic term that kind of covers everything that keeps us healthy and happy, but we really specialize in workplace well-being. So uh, working with corporate organizations to support employees to thrive really. And there's, there's, I suppose there's two main parts to our business. One of those is education. So we provide training courses, workshops, and seminars on lots of different subjects, all the subjects that are in that broad scope of well-being, and then the other part of our business is health screening. So going into organisations and doing one-to-one health assessments on on individual employees, and that's and that's my background. Worked in the health and fitness industry, and then trained as a, a physiologist doing health screening. Um, so when I got into workplace well-being, one of the of the obvious legs to go into was was to to continue doing health assessments, but also provide some education in between. We Are Wellbeing was probably born out of a few frustrations of mine. And and one of the frustrations was that when organizations or or generally senior leaders and directors and execs go for a health assessment every year, we'd sit down with somebody like me, you'd have all these health assessments and we'd have all these these metrics about your health provided and some insight. And then we'd say something like, okay, well done, Mr. Smith. We'll see you again in, in a year's time. And then Mr. Smith had come back and, and nothing would change. There'd be no healthier, there'd be no health improvement. And one of the things I realized was there wasn't any follow-up. There's no education in between those two health checks to support Mr. Smith to be able to improve his health and well-being, get some real professional insight. So one of the things that we really wanted to do with We Are Wellbeing was to provide the health checks, but also to provide this interim of education around mental health and, and, and stress management and sleep and energy and all the things in between. That's what we do is workplace well-being. So you're working with employers, large and small, and you're providing people with the information. This is something which is like with my HR hat on is mm. really very interesting and I think very important. Information can be dangerous, but we still have the choice of to what we do with that information. We can say, oh yeah, interesting. I'm not going to do anything with it. Or we can say, interesting. I want to do something with it, but what do I do with it? And that's where the education comes in so that you can then provide people with the information which gives them the options and enables them to make decisions about the things that they want to do to improve their health based on the information that you've been able to give them as a result of the health screening. Absolutely. Yeah. I think what a lot of people struggle with is well-being is it's a bit of a minefield it's really difficult for people to, to navigate their way through and identify what is this, what is the right information? Uh, and, and nothing probably highlights this more than maybe nutrition. I think nutrition is definitely one of those areas of, of well-being where people get stuck. They see conflicting advice. You know, they'll read one article and then they'll read another article that completely contradicts the first one. Um, and that, and that, that can be quite, quite a frustration for a lot of people. One, one of the things that we try to do is make sure that we're providing uh, expert, 
evidence-based, clinically relevant advice, but not telling people what to do. I think one of the things that I've learned as, as being a health and wellbeing professional for best part, you know, just over 20 years, is that when you tell somebody what to do, it feels... Um, None of us like to be told what to do. Well, no, it's... it's... Especially, especially with our own bodies. And uh, we all think that we know, and we all know somebody who's in a worse state than us. And I think the other thing, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think an awful lot of the problems that people have with their health and well-being are because they've done what everybody else did. Whether they liked it or not, they've just followed what everyone else did. Mm, absolutely. Because everybody else goes to the pub, so I'll go to the pub. The option of not going to the pub is that you're going to be at home by yourself. And so to be sociable, you have to do something which is defined by other people. And speaking from personal experience, you can be in the pub and people will say, oh, we've had five pints, you've only had one. I exaggerate to make the point, but you, you're then in that situation where you have to fit in with the crowd rather than actually being making decisions for yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, going back, I mean, so one of, one of the things that when you tell somebody what to do, it, it's first off, it's really patronizing. Nobody wants to be told what to yep. do. And and there's the other aspect of what you're talking about there is that it is different for everybody. And and what works for me as a, as a, as a health and fitness professional, but as, a, as, a, as another human, is probably not going to work for you. What's really interesting, so we've been doing some some training today around behavior change. And one of the things we talked to to the delegates about is how do you get somebody to buy into the, the concepts of health and well-being and telling them what to do does the opposite. So one of the things you've got to realize is that most people and everybody who's listening to this pretty much guarantee that you know why you're not as healthy as you could be. It's not usually a revelation. Most of it, like I, I'm, a, I, you know, I know more about myself than anybody else does, and I can tell you for certain that I am a complete and utter chocoholic. I'm, uh, I'm an emotional eater. Now I don't need some health and fitness professional to tell me that. I know that about myself. But what I could do with, or what most people could would benefit from, is a, is a really open and honest conversation about how to navigate the way through this. Um, about how to set goals, something a bit more realistic, and, and 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 identify a way of creating a plan to be able to to improve their health and well-being. And what we don't want to do is have these lifestyle overhauls. So you think about, you know, in January every year, thousands of people join gyms uh, and sign up to this new year, new me mindset, and, and most people aren't successful. And then the challenge with that is that when people aren't successful and they don't achieve these outlandish goals that they've set themselves, they end up feeling bad about themselves. And you think about health and well-being at the minute, it's not just about physical health, it's about mental health as well. And mental health in society isn't that great at the minute. So what we don't want to do is put pressure on people to set health and well-being goals, be unsuccessful, and then have a worse mindset as a result of it. So we've got to really take a, a, a different approach, a more balanced approach, to health and well-being going forward and it's the little steps i suppose in many ways but it's very interesting i am also uh, a chocoholic type of person i have uh, uh, my solution for that was almost to say well i will i will eat less but i will eat better quality so the quantity will go down and i will eat a better quality chocolate i increase the volume of uh, cocoa solid in the chocolate that i eat rather than simply the the commercial milk chocolate that's got lots of sugar in it. I still enjoy 
eating the chocolate, but I eat less of it, but I still have what I like about it. I don't need to eat as much, just a little. But I made the decision, and I made the decision by myself, and I have taken the steps to try and make it happen and stick to it, not necessarily because um, of anything. Well, I understood the less sugar in the chocolate, you get the chocolate without all the, the necessarily bad things, all that sort of stuff. Like, I've waffled there. You told me... That's, that's, we, I, you told me not to waffle. Uh, well, sorry, you told me to tell you not to waffle, and then I've waffled all about this, <laughs> this chocolate type of stuff, you know? Well, this but, is it. You get on the subject of chocolate. People are passionate about chocolate. Yes. I'm one of it is. It's it's slightly addictive. I know people who feel the same sort of way as about coffee or um, all sorts of things, and I know that... Alcohol, nicotine. Yeah. We all have something yeah. that we use either as a, as a habit, whether that's nicotine, alcohol, caffeine, cacao in, in the chocolate, whatever it is, that is the thing that we can go to for our uh, emotional eating. You know, we, uh, I suppose we can almost say, you know, I've had a good day at work, so I deserve this bar of chocolate or I deserve mm. this, this drink or I've had a terrible day at work and or that person has really annoyed me or or whatever yeah. and i'm going to go to this socially acceptable uh, drug alcohol nicotine uh, caffeine whatever it is that's my way of either celebrating mm. or commiserating it's amazing that we think the same product can be used for celebrating and yeah, commiserating absolutely. but it, it, there's a lot of bit is habit isn't it it is i think do you know, one of the things i think from from sort of like my, my 20 years working in health and well-being is I've learned a few things. That I've, I mean, I've learned more than a few things, I'd hope. But some of the things that I would definitely kind of try and pass on to people is one is not to demonize things. And when we demonize things and look for the abstinence from and say, that, you know, I've done it before where I said, I'm going to quit chocolate. I'm going to, I'm going to not stop eating this. I'm going to not have, a, not have a drink. And people just set themselves up for failure. And obviously, you know, if somebody's an alcoholic and, you know, they can get off alcohol and, and, and have a, a, a life of sobriety, fantastic, well done, that's brilliant. But most people are not alcoholics. Most people are not complete and utter diehard chocoholics. We can't live without it. It's about finding that balance. And then for me, well-being is not about that commercial ideology of fitness about, you know, being fit, being, you know, having 5% body fat, being, you know, having visible abs and all the rest of it. That's, that's nice if you want that kind of thing. But for me, well-being, it's about this, this overall holistic approach. It's about, you know, I want to be in shape. I want to be here for good health and, you know, have good longevity and be, you know, fit as I get older. But I also want to enjoy myself. And, and when I think about well-being and, and the approach that I take with We Are Well-Being, is the two really famous quotes that I always refer to when I think about where does our business sit and our approach sit. And one of them is by a guy called Jim Rohn who said, you've got to look after your body because it's the only place you've got to live. Yeah, And yes. that kind of makes sense. Well, it makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. And then the other quote that we, where, where I sit on the other side is by uh, Colin McRae, the rally driver, who said we're here for a good time, not a long time. That's true as well. For me, well-being personally sits in the right smack in smack bang in the middle of between those two when you think about life expectancy you know people are living longer medicine's getting better obviously you know nhs is stretched but medicine generally is getting better so people are living longer but people aren't living longer in in good health people aren't getting an extra 20 or 30 years when they're 20 or 30 people are getting an extra 20 or 30 years when they're 70 80 90 or 100 so one of the things that we've really got to think about is 
that personal accountability to look after our health and well-being and do something about it now. Um, and the, you know, you could argue that it's never too late to start. And I would say absolutely, there's never a bad time to start exercising. But the earlier you can get into this, these habits and formulate these routines and, and make it part of your lifestyle, you, you set yourself up for a better chance. Yes, I can see exactly what you mean. And those two quotations, I think, make an awful lot of sense. And it's something that I think we probably need to be more aware of whilst we're making those decisions. We only have one body. That's the only place that we actually live. We only live in one environment. Uh, but we, we should look after our own personal body and make the decisions that enable us to have a good time for as long a time as is possible, rather than cramming it all in. And I suppose from what you're saying is that the decisions that you make when you're 18, 19, 20 will have an impact on your health when you are 30. The decisions you make when you're 30 will have an impact on your health at 40 and 40 to 50 and, and onwards. It's, it's, it's like you have this one body which you are going to live in we really need to look after it. It's almost like sometimes we send our cars in for an MOT and a service to make sure that it's going to operate properly. But unless you're one of those senior executives that you talked about earlier on, you know, you're not likely to get that annual checkup as to make sure that you are healthy or that we've got as much notice as possible of something that might become an issue in the future at some stage and then most people are not getting the information that they need in order to act on the information that they would get from some sort of health assessment correct me if i'm wrong but i suspect that when people hear about someone that they know or someone who's in the media on that person has had an illness that's one of the times when they become aware of that illness may also impact them that health condition may also impact them. And that's when they perhaps start to think about what do I do to avoid that? How many times have I done what that person has done? Why haven't I done the checks that that person failed to do and is now in a, in a health situation? hundred percent. One of the things that is really apparent and it's interesting when you do health assessments and it's not often, I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's a personal health situation that scares somebody. I mean, generally, we talk about this the other day. Generally speaking, women are fairly good at going out, getting their checks, uh, you know, going for mammography, going for, for smear tests and, 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 being, and kind of being health aware. Men, we don't really get offered any kind of formal screening, probably until we're about 50 now. Mm-hmm. So to go 50 years without, with the absence of somebody coming and saying, not like you need to come for a regular check and then all of a sudden dis- you know, come for a check. It's a long time to, to, to have that uh, not on your agenda. You know, I think the NHS used to do these, these well man and well woman checks when you hit 40, like these, this 40 plus health check. But that's really based on what NHS trust you live within. Um, so some, some NHS trusts are really good at getting it done and some, some not so much. So I think, yeah, being, being more health aware, having some accountability over your own health and be just that, that thing about... You t- you know, you put your car in for an MOT, but you, you should probably put your body through an MOT. Yes. I've, one of the things that I've, I've become aware of, I think, is that women are more comfortable talking about their health. And it's only when the women in our lives talk about their health and when we're presented with the information as men about the issues that might face us that listening to the 
the women talk sort of gives us a little bit more confidence to have the conversations ourselves. You know, women talk about um, breast cancer. Mm. Men sort of almost talk about testicular cancer. Women talk about going for smear tests, but many men won't go, are embarrassed. I've seen you post on social media posts yeah. about why men should go and have the prostate um, check. The, the challenges that men go through and sort of like, no, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that. Well, actually, you go for that test because, you know, too many men are dying from things that we should not be dying from. You know, we're not having the checks. Absolutely. To highlight this, and I'm sure, you know, in, 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 the, uh, in the spirit of raising awareness, I'm sure the, the family won't mind me mentioning this, but the, the building that I'm in now is called Lloyd Pinder House. And it's named after one of our ex-colleagues, who Lloyd, who was a director within the group. And Lloyd, I think it was about 43, 44, when he was diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer. Wow. Four or five years later, Lloyd passed away. So the, the building's a bit of a tribute to Lloyd, which is really lovely. But one of the things that Lloyd's passing and Lloyd's diagnosis highlighted to me was, I've got to go and get myself checked. Yeah. Lloyd, Lloyd has two, two little girls the same age as my little girls. And like for me, it was like, I, I don't want to wait until I get that invite from the NHS when I'm 50. I need to be going now. So at the time, I think I was about 30, 31, 32, and I paid for a, a private uh, PSA blood test and a, and a DRE, a digital rectal exam, a private clinic. The peace of mind, knowing that I didn't have anything suspicious, was worth every penny. We don't want to create a sense of the worried well, where we're getting guys to panic and think, oh, have I got this and have I got that? But... You need to be self-aware. So one of the things that we talk about is like, you know, like checking your testicles. If you're in the shower, if you're in bed, you know, when your body temperature is warm and, you know, like rolling your thumb over your testicles to, make, to, to identify if there's any lumps or anything suspicious there that you're not, that, that anything that's, that's not usually there, anything that's changed. That, that's stuff that we should be doing, but we should be talking about it. And, and unfortunately, not enough guys put their hand up to talk about it. And I think for me, that's, that's kind of, I've kind of carved that out for myself. I'm, I'm more than comfortable being that guy that talks about, checking your testicles and going for a prostate exam because it is, you know, it's, it's, it's not the most comfortable subject for some, but when you put yourself out there and talk about it, it, it almost, uh, it makes it, it gives people permission, I guess, to talk about it. And I think that's, and it's the same with mental health. So I, I often go in to organizations where there's, there's a lot of guys, there's a lot of you know, male orientated uh, environment. So if, sometimes things like building sites or if it's big engineering firms, where guys are typically talking about this stuff and I'll go in and I'll talk about it. I'll talk about mental health. I'll talk about suicide. I'll talk about men's health stats. Go in with confidence to talk about that. And, and straight away, it gives everybody in the room permission to talk about it. And, and people put their hands up and say, you know what, Andy, I've been through that as well. That's For me, it's a bit of a personal mission, really, is to get more guys talking about mental health. And just on, on, on the mental health, on the men's mental health, or the men's health subject range, really, one of the webinars that we often deliver is, is, is men's health. And we often do that in sort of like November time. It's interesting when you look at some of the stats around mental health, because one of the, one of the slides that we put together was a, a mortality timeline of what are the primary, secondary and tertiary causes of death for males in their teens, in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s. And we hear, like, if, if, if we think about like, what does what are the kind of subjects that somebody's going to talk about when we hear the term men's health, straight away you think about prostate, you think about testicular cancer. What's really interesting is at none of those age ranges 
is prostate cancer or testicular cancer, the primary or secondary cause of death or tertiary cause of death. The biggest killer in men under 50 is suicide. And the biggest killer in men over sort of 50, maybe 55, is uh, heart disease. And then over 80, I think it's Alzheimer's and dementia. So when we think about what are the biggest risks to us as men, it's not testicular cancer and prostate cancer. It's suicide. It's it's mental ill health. So we need to keep kind of pushing the button on that and keep keep talking about it and normalize that conversation even more. Look after each other, I suppose, in lots of ways. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. This is, we've just got to persevere and keep, keep going. Yeah. We talked earlier about personal accountability. And I think for me, it's, you know, there are a lot of, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of things organizations should do. Organizations to look after their people should make sure that we're not expecting people to be working all weekend. We shouldn't be expecting people to be laying in bed worrying about work. And, and organizations need to communicate that better. But individually, we've also got a responsibility to be fit for work. So like one of the things that I'm really kind of keen on is if I'm doing, doing a seminar on a, on a Monday morning and I'm starting at nine o'clock in the morning and I, you know, I try and deliver all my, all my seminars or all my workshops with a, a lot of energy, it's my responsibility to go to bed on time. It's my responsibility to stop, turn Netflix off and go, and go to bed and, and get a good seven or eight hours sleep. It's my responsibility to get my butt out of bed and go to the gym in the morning. It's those things. So I think one of the things I'd, I'd encourage everybody to do is like, look at what you can do. Yeah. I, I, do you think that there are lots of people who are sort of going like, yeah, I can smoke, I can drink. And then, you know, if I get ill, there'll be a GP, there'll be a hospital, there'll be specialists, there'll be all sorts of various different things that I've paid my taxes for. So it's all going to be there on tap and I'll be able to call on this great health system that we call the NHS and everything will be fine. There's an expectation that we can do whatever we want and the NHS will put us right. We'll get a shock when they turn up. That's not a kick at the the wonderful NHS staff. They're doing a a sterling job, but it's stretched. You know, the the NHS was designed to look after a certain amount of people and, 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 and and the pressure that it's under, you know, I work with one of my other businesses, wellbeing clinic. We we work with, with four consultants from different specialists and they're all stretched. The con they're all, they're all stressed. They're all overworked and, and, and struggling. So the expectation that you can not look after yourself, you can become more overweight. You can smoke and you do all of this stuff that's detrimental to your health and somebody will be able to just kind of turn on a machine and help you out. That's not that's not the case. I mean, it never has been the case, but it's definitely not the case now. And, and I think one of the things, hopefully, that one of the lessons from COVID is you've got to look after yourself. Yes, yeah. There are certain things that are going to put you at higher risk. Being older, we can't do much about that, but being overweight and being unfit and having a poor lung, lung function they're the things that are going to increase your risk of premature death. So if you can do something about that, which we all, which, you know, arguably we all can, there's something that we should do. And, and I think for me, where we are well-being can support with that is, is providing evidence-based, good quality expert advice and, and, and helping people navigate through all the, uh, the misinformation that's out there. The advice has to be very individual for each individual person that you're speaking to. It's, nobody should be thinking, well, the person that I work with can run a marathon in under three hours or they swim two miles every morning or whatever. Nobody has to compare themselves with other people. This is very much about you as an individual doing what is best for you, 
taking responsibility for the decisions that you make, being accountable for the consequences of those decisions. But actually, it's all about you as an individual, not you as part of any type of group. You know, you can be as fit and healthy as the decisions that you make. And that that's what it comes down to from what you're saying. It's like, yeah, there are all sorts of things. We all need to be more open and be talking about our health more. We need to discuss it with with our friends, with our families, to make sure that they're aware of the things that might cause us an issue. There's no point in knowing that you're allergic to a particular type of food, but not telling the people who do the cooking. You have to make people aware of the issues that you might have, and then they can support you to lead what I suppose would be the best life that you can with that condition. But you have to make sure that you understand. If I understand what it is that you're saying, it is that individuals have to have the information, make sure that they understand the consequences of the decisions that they make as an individual and how those decisions will affect their ability to live the life that they want to lead, which you summed up in those two quotations, like we only have one body to live in. Yeah, we're here for a good time, not a long time, but we need to make sure that the good time lasts for as long as possible. And that's all about we are well-being, talking about information, education, and enabling people to make decisions for themselves. Hit the nail on the head. Thank you very much. Andy, I have known you for a few years now, but I have learned so much in the last sort of like half an hour about those ideas that I've had, but you actually, have, you've cemented them with me. It's like, I need to be conscious of the decisions that I make and the consequences that they have for us, especially as we start to get um, a little bit older. I wish I had known this when I was in my teens and twenties and, and the, the decisions that I was making then. But well, we all. Yes. <laughs> for now, though, I hope this isn't the last time that we get an opportunity to have a chat with you on Fit For My Age. But for now, um, thank you very much for being uh, one of our first guests on Fit For My Age. It's been great. Very interesting. I've learned a lot. Thank you. No, thank, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you to you for listening to Fit For My Age. I am Michael Millward, the Managing Director of Abbasida and I have been having a conversation about how to be fit for my age with Andy Romero Birkbeck of wearewellbeing.co.uk. You can find out more about both of us at abbasida.co.uk and there are links in the description below. If you have liked this edition of Fit For My Age, please give it a like and to make sure you don't miss out on future editions, please subscribe. Remember, the aim of all the podcasts produced by Abbasida is not to tell you what to think, but we do hope to make you think. Thank you.